Well, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is the key and core passage in the book of Philippians. Everything that Paul has said has been leading up to this point. Everything that Paul will say after flows from what we have here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In fact, what, what, what is described here, this picture of Jesus Christ, is, is absolutely foundational to understanding not just the book of Philippians, but understanding the whole Bible, understanding the gospel, understanding the whole Christian message really hinges on understanding Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. These themes are found all throughout the Bible, but they're concentrated so clearly and succinctly here in these six verses. What Paul is doing in this passage is he is painting this picture of Jesus Christ for the church at Philippi. And he really has two aims. One is adoration and the other is imitation. His first name is adoration. He wants the people to adore Jesus. He wants them to see this picture that he's painting and for them to fall down and worship him. But he, he doesn't just want them to worship him. He wants them to walk in his ways. His goal is adoration, but also imitation. He's been calling them to live lives of joy, to live lives of humility. And he sets out as the ultimate example the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we've been living in the midst of this pandemic for the last several months, we've had to learn a whole new vocabulary. If you had asked me a few months ago what PPE stood for, I wouldn't have been able to give you an answer. I had never heard of coronavirus. I had never used social and distancing together in the same a sentence. We, we have this whole new slang vocabulary. If you happen to encounter another human being when you're out of the house in the grocery store on the sidewalk, you do the Corona Dodge where you step aside to allow enough space for another human being to, uh, to walk by you at a safe social distance. And, and there are uh, all kinds of other slang terms. If you've got high school students at home that you're trying to teach and, and you're, you've got a house full of quarantines and people talk about their corona cuts because their salon or barber has been closed under this lockdown. My barber's open. I cut my own, uh, my own hair. And we have these different slang terms. If you disagree with someone politically or how they're applying the different government guidelines and you just get fed up, you might just call them a COVIDian. These are, these are all terms that we are using that we never had used before because we're living in this new season. Well, living the Christian life is no different. If we, if we want to know Jesus and follow Jesus, if we want to adore him and imitate him, to worship him and to walk in his ways, there are, some, there are some theological terms that are really helpful for us to know and grasp and understand and be able to use and apply in our lives in order to follow him and to serve him. And so as Paul is painting this glorious picture of Jesus Christ, I want to use sort of, in the same way that a frame has four sides, I want to use four theological terms to help frame this glorious and beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the passage begins in verse 5 by saying, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus 
Paul has been trying to encourage the church at Philippi to have the right mindset. Going back to chapter 1, verse 27, he he said, be of one mind. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says it again, be of one mind. He even says one more time, be of the same mind. He's been telling them, have this mind, have this mind. And now, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he's particularly describing, this is the kind of mindset I want you to have. I want you to think about the mind of Christ. I don't know about you, but I, I really miss sports. I miss watching sports. I miss sports coverage. Uh, you know what I miss? I miss the cliched-filled post-game interviews. It's such a, such a silly and small thing, but you, you know the sort of classic question after the, the hero of the game uh, is, is brought together for an interview with some reporters and they've just scored the winning goal or the winning basket and, and the, the reporter asks this question, you always know what's going to come. Always the question comes, what was going through your mind when the puck went in the net or the ball went in the net or through the hoop or over the fence? What was going through your mind? You see, we are so curious about greatness. When we witness greatness on the outside, we want to know what was going on on the inside of the person that accomplished that greatness. Now listen, there is no greater example of greatness than Jesus. And so Paul here is telling us to have the mind of Christ so that we would be able to think like him and therefore live like him, serve like him, be humble like him. So he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then he's going to paint this picture of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And, and I'm going to frame this picture with these four theological terms. Here's the first one, divinity, divinity. And jot down beside that word, Jesus is God. Paul says in verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was in the form of God. He was equal with God. Equality with God was not something that he had to grasp or reach for. You don't have to grasp and reach for something that you already have. Paul here is metaphorically comparing Jesus to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve believed the lie from the serpent that if they reached out and grasped the fruit, what did Satan tell them? He told them, you will become like God. Becoming like God was something that they didn't possess. It was something that they thought they had to grasp for. And they grasped for because they wanted to be equal with God, not so with Jesus. Equality with God was not something to be grasped. You don't grasp for something that you already have. Jesus was equal with God. He was in the form of God. He was eternal, uncreated, eternally pre-existent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, equal in glory and in holiness. Jesus is one with the Father. A word closely related to, to divinity here is the word trinity, that there is one God who is eternally pre-existent in three persons, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. They are each unique and distinct and yet still one. Jesus was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Our, our church just wrapped up recently a study through the gospel of John. And John chapter 1 begins in this way. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Some people think that Jesus is just a regular a human being. Other, other people uh, believe that, that Jesus is a created being. No, no, Jesus is not created. Nothing was created that wasn't created by him. He is the uncreated one. He is the eternally preexistent one. And so to help us understand these terms and how they relate to one another and how they fit together within Philippians chapter 2, I, I want to walk us through this chart. Here's the, here's the first aspect. Here's where we can place this theological term on our chart this morning. So divinity, Jesus is God. Now John chapter 1 paints this picture of Jesus being the Word and he was in the beginning and he was with God and he was God. And then John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That leads us to the next theological term. The term is incarnation. Incarnation. Which the, the, the word carnation has carn in it, which means flesh. A, a carnivore is an animal that eats flesh. The incarnation is Jesus becoming human, him taking on flesh. So jot this down, incarnation, Jesus became fully human while remaining fully God. Notice I was very careful in our chart at the beginning. I didn't say Jesus was God. I said Jesus is God. In becoming human, Jesus didn't cease to be God. Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. It says in verse 7 that Jesus emptied himself. Now, a, a lot of biblical scholars and, and pastors and preachers try to make, make a big deal of this word emptied and thinking that in order for Jesus to, to take on humanity, he had to empty himself of his divinity. That This is what's called the kenosis theory, that this idea that that's the Greek word for empty, that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity in order to fill himself with humanity. That, that is a complete misunderstanding of what is going on here. We, we don't get to just make up what we think empty is describing because the context here tells us how Jesus emptied. It, it's this little word that comes right after the word himself. It says he emptied himself by. This is how he emptied himself. It doesn't say he emptied himself by diminishing his divinity or, or laying aside all of his divine power and attributes. That's not what it says. No, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of man. This is how he emptied himself. It has to do with his status. He, he renounced his rights. He came as a servant. He deserved to be served, but he came to serve, Mark 10, 45 tells us. Jesus, David Helm uh, describes this so perfectly, when it says that Jesus emptied himself, it wasn't about what he took out, it was about what he took on. In taking on the role of a servant, in taking on human flesh, being born in the likeness of men, that is how Jesus emptied himself. He emptied himself of, of his status that he was that he was rightful and he, he could have demanded that people serve him but he came to serve that's how he emptied himself 
And so as we plot this on our chart, we have a divinity, Jesus is God, and then incarnation, Jesus became human, fully God and fully human. When Jesus added humanity, he did not diminish any of his divinity, fully human and fully God. This is so powerful and profound. On our, on our chart, it's just a small little gap between divinity and incarnation. But when you think about the reality of the creator becoming part of his creation, it's really mind-blowing. Listen to the way that one uh, a Puritan preacher, John Flavel, describes it. He says, the sun, or for the sun to fall from its sphere and be degraded into a wandering atom, for an angel to be turned out of heaven and be converted into a silly fly or worm had been no such great abasement, for they were but creatures before, and so they would abide still, though in an inferior order or species of creatures. The distance betwixt the highest and lowest species of creatures is but a finite distance. If, if the sun, the S-U-N, were to become an atom, that would still be a created thing becoming another created thing. If an angel were to become an insect, that's still a creature becoming another form of a creature. There's the, it, It's still in the same category. Flavo goes on to say, the angel and the worm dwell not so far apart. But for the infinite glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. The distance between God and the highest order of creatures is an infinite distance. The distance between divinity and incarnation on our chart is just a matter of inches. But loved ones, it is an infinite gap, the massive chasm that Jesus has crossed, the creator becoming one of his creatures. There's massive implications for this. Firstly, it, it, it deals with this false teaching that goes all the way back to the, to the ancient Greeks, this idea that we're somehow uh, good people spiritually that are trapped in this flesh prison of, of a physical body. Listen, that is not true. Jesus was a holy, sinless, perfect human being who lived in real flesh in blood, just like yours and mine. So our flesh and blood needs to be treated with dignity and with reverence. And the, the incarnation sets the stage for Jesus to accomplish his mission. And that leads us to our third theological concept. And it's, it's a doozy. Get ready for this one. I'll, I'll break it down. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal substitutionary atonement. And right down beside that, Jesus died in our place. Jesus died in our place. If you take the word penal and add T-Y beside it, you get the word penalty. We're all familiar with the concept of penalty. A penalty is a punishment imposed for breaking a law. Jesus came to to receive a penalty, to pay a penalty. But it's, it's penal substitutionary. Jesus came as a substitute. Now, kids, we all know what it's like to have a substitute teacher. Your, 
your regular teacher is sick or has to go away on a course or training. And so another teacher comes as a substitute. And for the last three or four months, your, your, your parents or your older brother or sister or your grandparents, have they've been your substitute teacher, haven't they been? And I, I hope that you're behaving better for your, your current substitute teacher than I did when I was your age whenever a substitute teacher would come to my class. We all understand this idea of, of substitute. So Jesus came as a substitute to pay a penalty. And the penalty is, is atonement. Now atonement is this catch-all term to describe everything that Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus came to cover the shame of sin, to remove the stain of sin, to satisfy the wrath of God's anger towards us for our sin, to reconcile us in our relationship to God, to pay the ransom price, to set us free from slavery to sin. Jesus accomplished atonement. So Jesus came to pay the penalty as a substitute, to accomplish atonement, to restore our relationship, to redeem us from slavery, to satisfy the wrath of God and cover the shame and the stain of sin. That's what Jesus came to do. And in order to do that, incarnation was necessary. You see, because we are humans. And so human sin, we are the ones who have rebelled against God, who have broken his law and therefore deserve a penalty, deserve a punishment. And so a human punishment must be paid by a human being. And so Jesus came to pay the punishment that all of us deserve. But we have sinned. Our, 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 the, the law that we have broken is an eternal law. We have sinned against an eternal God, an infinite God. And so the penalty is an infinite penalty. And so it requires an eternal being in order to pay that penalty. That is why Jesus in an instant could satisfy the wrath of God, could pay the penalty that all of us deserve for our sin. He was a human being who could pay the penalty for human sin, but a divine eternal being who could satisfy that penalty in an instant. And so as we trace this on our, on our chart now, we have divinity and incarnation, and then the cross is penal substitutionary atonement. You see, when the Christian looks at the cross, we don't just see some religious leader whose life ended tragically. We don't see some misunderstood uh, mystic who ended up being martyred or murdered. No, no, no. We look at, we look at the cross with the understanding of divinity and incarnation. We look at the cross and we, we recognize that is God on the cross. That is the creator suffering at the hands of his sinful creatures. Not only that, we understand penal substitutionary atonement. Not only do we marvel that that is God on the cross, we also look at the cross and say, that should have been me. He is dying in my place. You want to talk about having the right mindset. You want to talk about living with humi humility. Listen, if that doesn't humble you, nothing will. That Jesus had to go through the cross in order to pay the penalty for my sin and for our sin. Jesus suffered in our place. 
penal substitutionary atonement. It's at the depth of our chart, at the depth of Christ's descent, where we see the greatest example of his selflessness and his servanthood, his submission to the Father's will, in his shame that he experienced on our behalf as he paid that sacrifice as our substitute. Paul says in verse 8 that he... That being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came to be obedient, obedient to the Father's will. He prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The death that all of us deserve. He came to pay a, a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. He is our substitute. He paid the penalty for our atonement. So verses 6 to 8 describe what Jesus has done. Now verse, verse 9 tells us how the Father responds to what Jesus has accomplished. And then verses 10 and 11 describe how us, together with all of creation, ought to respond and ultimately will respond. Verse 10, or sorry, verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And verse 10 says, So that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. The Greek word there is kyrios. It means master or ruler, the ultimate authority. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is kyrios, that he is Lord, and it's the Father who has exalted him. So jot this down. Here's our fourth and final theological term. Exaltation, Jesus is Lord. Exaltation, Jesus is Lord. And as we plot this on our chart, we have divinity, we have incarnation, penal substitution, which ultimately leads to Jesus' exaltation by the Father and creation's response in declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is Kyrios. You see, the whole reason why Jesus came to descend was so that he would, in fact, reascend. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes this in his book, Miracles. He says, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. In the Christian story, God descends and reascends. He comes down down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. He goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, 
rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, holding in his hand the dripping, precious thing that he went down to recover. Loved ones, we are the precious thing that he has gone down to recover. This is why the Father sent the Son, that the Son would emerge with us in his hands, rescued and redeemed, forgiven and cleansed, that Jesus ascends from the grave with us in his hand, and then the Father in his hand lifts up the Son and exalts him. That's what the word exalt means, to hold up high in your hand or to lift up. The Father has exalted the Son, and he has given him the name that is above every name. What is the name? Well, well, quite frankly, the name is Lord. Lord means master and ruler, that there's no one greater. You follow the organizational chart uh, all the way to the top, and you have Lord. You have master, the one who is in charge. The Father has given the Son the title of Lord. Now, we need to understand Philippians chapter 2 and Paul's use of this word Lord and Kyrios in its biblical context, in its canonical context, particularly as it relates to the book of Isaiah. You see, in Isaiah, God makes these incredible, emphatic, personal identification statements. He, he says in Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, that's YHWH or Jehovah or Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. It's God's personal name. I am that I am. He says, I am the Lord. But in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, called the Septuagint, it's translated Kyrios. I am the Kyrios. Then he says, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. God says, I'm not sharing my glory. I am the only master. I am the only ruler. I am the only I am that I am. There is no equal. I have no rival. Then a few chapters later in Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23, he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. God is a missional God. He didn't just want the Hebrew people to believe in him. He, he wants people from the ends of the earth to believe in him. People from every tribe and nation and language and tongue. God wants people from all over the planet Earth to believe in him. And he goes on to say, for I am God and there is no other. All these other gods that other people believe in, they're all fake. I am the only true God. And then he says, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? Look back at Philippians chapter 2. Every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. Or swearing allegiance. Did you see what's happening here? Here we have just a restatement of Jesus' divinity within the Trinity, that Jesus is God. So that when God can says, when God says, I am the Lord, Jesus is the Lord. That he is master and ruler. And that the name of Jesus, the name Lord, belongs to Jesus. And that Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Verse 11 says that 
Every creature in heaven, every angelic being, every cherub and seraph will declare that he's Lord. Every being under the earth will declare that Jesus is Lord. Every demonic spirit and, and everyone on the earth, every, every human being, living or dead, will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even the most ardent atheist, even the most self-centered and wicked despot who, who commanded other people to call them Lord will have to bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, human history is, is on a trajectory. It's all leading somewhere, and it's leading to this crescendo moment where every creature will declare that the creator who became a creature and suffered and died at the hands of his creation in order to redeem his creatures and is exalted that he is Lord. That will happen one day. Verse 9 is past tense. God has exalted. Verse 10 and 11 is future tense. This is going to happen. But loved ones, this can happen for you right now. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're just tuning in. This has been a great message for you to start with because this is the essence of the Christian message. Divinity, Jesus is God. Incarnation, God came and dwelt among men. God became a man. Penal substitutionary atonement, he died on the cross to pay the penalty that I deserve and that you deserve. And exaltation, he is Lord. Listen, one day we're all gonna say it. Every human being on planet Earth is going to open their mouth and confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. Will you do it today? Will you make a decision to follow Jesus Christ? And maybe you made that decision long ago. Maybe you've been declaring Jesus is Lord for years and years. Listen, this should never get old. This is a privilege that we can declare right now freely and voluntarily what every person will one day ultimately have to say. We can say that Jesus has the name above all names. We can say that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so as we respond to this message, as we think about adoration and imitation of who Jesus is, is let's sing this simple chorus that I remember learning when I was a child. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.